our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honour and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Today we start off a six-week series explaining Christianity and I hope you're able to tune in to all six or come along for all six would even be better. It'd be really helpful to be at all six because all the ideas are linked together. And when you see what Christianity is saying as a package, you'll see it's not just the religion of the brainless as has been claimed over the last 30 years or so by the atheists. It's not just a bunch of just-so stories or myths, uh, a bunch of weird ideas that people made up and threw together and developed over a period of time, but it's completely coherent. It fits together to make sense of this world, to make sense of life, And I trust as we work through it together, it'll give you lots to think about and reflect on and will help you sort things out with God. For this series, we're working through six issues or six concepts that are at the heart of what Christianity is about, which give you a foundation for knowing God and how to respond to him rightly and on what basis we can come to him and then what it means to to live in this world uh, with him in the picture. And to help us out uh, with each of the six concepts, they're going to have each of them their own picture that goes with it. They're going to have a summary statement and they'll have a key Bible verse. And it leaves us with a choice at the end of the six weeks. And today we're looking at the foundation of it all. The fact that God is real that he, and that he's not just out there somewhere disconnected from the world, but God is intimately involved in the affairs of this world and So what we do with him matters greatly because he is the creator. So today we're looking at God and creation and there are three elements to this great concept I want to draw out and you can see the picture as it comes up, how it relates to them. Number one, God is the loving ruler of this world and you can see he's represented in the picture by the crown because he is the ruler. But he's not just a ruler, he's the loving ruler who's intimately involved in this world and that he's made and, and intimately involved with us. Second uh, part element, it, he made the world. That's the circle at the bottom. Fundamental to our understanding of God as the loving ruler of the world is that he is the creator and maker of the world. Third element, he made us rulers of the world under him. That's why we stand between the world and God. We have a special place in creation which gives us particular responsibilities and particular privileges. The Bible begins with that claim on the first page and it reinforces it all the way through over and over again that God is the creator. God is our creator. We saw a sample of that from our readings but one of the shortest and clearest summaries Uh, statements is that verse from Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 that I started with. Uh, It's from the last book of the Bible but it spells out why it matters that God is the creator. You see it there uh, on the screen, our Lord and God you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Now, in our age, in our society, it's not a given anymore that there is a God or that we should believe in one. No, if you do believe in something, it's not a given what that is that's out there. It's not a given what you should believe about him or her or them or it or whatever they are. 
We're living in a strange age that's dominated by two very different and opposing worldviews. Uh, one of those worldviews is atheism and materialism and its weaker cousin, agnosticism. You know, they're saying, I just don't know. Uh, the view that God doesn't exist or at the very least is unprovable and unknowable and so feel free to ignore him and live out a godless existence. That's one view. And atheism has its evangelists like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking and Christopher Hitchens and many, many others. The other opposing worldview that's around at the moment that's also strange is called relativism. It's the view that everyone's idea of God or spirituality is true and that uh, it's true because it's true for them. And so it doesn't matter what you believe about God or which God you believe in. If it's good for you and makes you feel better and doesn't hurt anyone else, then great, go for it because it makes it true somehow. And so there have been a massive rise in people trying all kinds of new things in terms of religion and spirituality, championed by great gurus like Oprah, who is right into the New Age movement uh, and promoting all types of things like The Secret and you know, sorting your life out with new techniques and things and meditation. Uh, then there's Joe Rogan, the world's most downloaded podcast with 300 million downloads per episode of his podcast. Who, but Joe Rogan recommends uh, tripping, micro-trips, micro-dosing on a drug called DMT, uh, dimethyltryptoline, which, which he says enhances your perception and even puts you in touch with the spiritual realities it even lets you know your maker, he claims. It happens to be a powerful hallucinogen. And while I agree that it might help you meet your maker, it's probably not in the same kind of way that he thinks. Uh, it's very, very dangerous. <coughs> and perhaps it's in response to these weird developments of a new surge in searching for spirituality and spiritual experiences on the one hand, but also the fact that Christianity didn't die the death that the prophets of the early and mid 20th century expected that over the last 20 or 30 years or so, there'd been many, many books published on religion and specifically on why religion should die. One of the biggest selling books is this one, The God Delusion by eminent genesis Richard Dawkins, in which he sets out to show you why believing in God and particularly believing in the Christian God is the most unreasonable an unthinking position that you could possibly hold. And many people, particularly from the intellectual community, are convinced that this denial of God, the argument that God doesn't exist, is just the natural outworkings of scientific endeavour and pursuit. There's this pervasive idea in the community that somehow science has done away with the need for the extraordinary in anything mythological, anything spiritual and religious <coughs> we can reason everything out. The claim is that science has killed God. Now, that's particularly fascinating to me because it was the Christians in the first place who led the whole scientific revolution. People like Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, even people the church rejected, like Galileo, all were Christians who had a Christian worldview. And it was that worldview, what they thought about God and his relation to the world, that meant they pursued science and the mechanical understanding of the world that they did. It wasn't because they wanted to do away with God, it was because they believed in God. 
See, they saw the world in a way that was totally different from the superstitions of most people and the way that typical folk religion presented things. They didn't see spirits behind every tree and, or deities over each area of life, you know, the sun god and the moon god and the rain god and so on. They, they, they weren't trying to fill in gaps of knowledge with boogeymen. They were Christians who believed there was one God overall and what they understood from the Bible was that, that God was the creator of the world, that he is separate from the world and he made this world in an orderly manner with rules and regulations and laws, the, the laws of nature, which, which God instilled into it so that the world would run in a way that benefited the people who he had made and who he loved, so that we could live and farm and operate in a consistent way and, and have expectations about what would happen tomorrow because God loves us. And so because they saw the world as a separate but dependent reality from God. They could study God's world in its own terms without having to shrug and say, well, it's all a mystery. No one can figure out, oh, you know, God does whatever God does. They never denied God's place or his existence. They took it as a given and were looking to understand the wonderful world he'd lovingly made for us. And so science sprang from this understanding of God as the creator and the sustainer of this world. But like most things, what's taught by one generation is believed by the next, is assumed by the next, and is denied by the one after that. And so with no real good reason for doing it, God dropped out of the conversation altogether. And so we're left with the claim now that it's not rational to believe in God and that God and science are natural enemies which is a nonsense. They're not enemies at all. They go together. And in moments of clarity, the atheists even admit it. Dr. Richard, uh, sorry, Richard Dawkins, years before he published The God Delusion, said, of course we cannot prove there is no God. He said that in 1994. See, it's not proof that led him to that conclusion, right? It's a wish. And there are plenty of others who admit that their unbelief has got nothing to do with proof. A few years ago, uh, one of Harvard's top professors came right out and said it, uh, Dr. Richard Lewontin. He said this, he said, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific committee for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. Moreover, the materialism, we believe, is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. You think about what he said. That's astonishing, isn't it? He's saying that he and his colleagues in the elites of science, they just don't want God in the picture. It's not that they've come to the conclusion by observation and experiment. They just don't want him there. They don't want to believe. But that's the very opposite of rational. It's irrational. It's closing your eyes and putting your fingers in your ears and saying, nah, 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 nah. It's, it's blind faith, in fact, something which 
the Bible always condemns. The world works because God made it to work. There's a regularity to all things because God is there. And the reason he made it with such predictability is because of his love for us. He is the loving ruler of this world. But on the other hand, relativism, that view that everything's true, whatever you believe in can be true, is just as irrational. And that view, um, you can go with whatever spirituality you like, that if it's true for you, then it must be true. And so go and explore and work out whatever floats your spirituality. It's a nonsense. That is just as much living in a fantasy gaga land and ignoring the facts and blind faith as, as what the others are saying. You don't get to make up reality. God does. And that is because God is the creator. So he gets to define what is real, what is true, what is right, what is meaningful. We're not living in a world of make-believe, but there is a reality to come to terms with because God has made it all and God has made us. And so he is not distant It's not like he just wound up the world and stepped back like a a giant old-fashioned clock and then was sitting back watching it unfold and unwind and do its thing as it runs down. No, he's interested. He's concerned. He's involved in this world. What happens here and what we do to each other matters to him. But even more, what we do with him How we respond to him matters. It matters greatly. It matters because he is our maker. Let me show it to you from that key verse in Revelation 4 verse 11. I'll read it to you again. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What is that saying? It's saying that God alone is worthy to be worshipped and given all glory, honour and power. Just think for a minute, who would you want to give all glory, honour and power to? Is there anyone who deserves that kind of devotion? Sometimes you see people doing it with pop stars as they hang on every word they say or they sing. They follow them around, learn their lyrics. They devote more money than they probably should to uh, seeing them live in concert in weird places of the world and buying all the souvenirs. But would you really want Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga running your life? Would you really want uh, ACDC running your life? They have enough trouble running their own lives. Sometimes you see people doing it with a sporting hero. They, they hit a six to win the match. They run a hundred meters in record time and, and you see the crowd bowing down to them as if in worship. Now it's in fun, I hope. But would you, you wouldn't really want to give a sporting hero all glory, honor and power. You wouldn't even want to elect someone as prime minister of our country just because they swam 400 meters in world record time or scored a great try in the final. In fact, who do we want to give power to we don't want to give power to anybody to nobody that's that's why voting is compulsory if it wasn't compulsory hardly anybody would turn up except for the devoted disciples on the one hand or the really ticked off on the other hand 
Nobody else would turn up to vote because we don't want to give power to anybody. And when we do vote somebody in, they're given very limited power, highly restricted power with all kinds of checks and balances to make sure they don't use and abuse their power. And even then, when we give this limited and restricted power to them, we say to them, well, in three years' time, we'll take it away from you if you don't do what we say or what we want. And we certainly don't give our politicians with their extremely limited power or glory and honour. Do Australians give our politicians any glory and honour? Hardly. We call them the honourable so-and-so, but we only do that to remind ourselves to honour them, but it's always with a slight tongue embedded firmly in the cheek. You know, the honourable mayor, the honourable whoever. See, who is worthy to be worshipped? Who is worthy to be given power and honour and glory forever? Who is worthy of it all? God is. Why is he worthy? Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. God is worthy to receive all glory and honour and power because he created all things. This whole world is his. He made it. He made it out of nothing. He brought it into existence. Without him, the world and the universe just wouldn't be there. Without him, you or I wouldn't be there. Without him, the living creatures uh, and the things that exist in the world with all their beauty and magnificence and diversity, they wouldn't be there. He has brought everything, all things into existence. It's all his. Without him, there would be no wonder of life. There would be no beauty in the universe. There would be no light or truth or love. There would be nothingness. That's, that's why God deserves all glory, all the thanks all the honour, all the power, all the praise. For all things come from him. See, being the creator gives him the right of ownership. Just like when you make something, you, you make a fantastic piece of art. You, you do some woodwork and create a, a lovely piece of furniture. You restore a, a vintage car you know, from an old wreck that you found at the junkyard and, and bring it back and lovingly restore it to life, you now have the right of ownership. You get to decide now what happens to it, whether you're going to keep it, whether you're going to put it on a shelf, probably not the car, but <laughs> whether you're going to sell it, whether you're going to junk it, whether you're going to drive it, whether you're going to use it for. You have the right because you made it. God made us and uh, he didn't do it out of curiosity just to see what would happen and, and chuck it out afterwards. No, 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 he made everything. He made you and me in this world for, for himself, for his own glory. And so it's not just that all things were made by him, all things were made for him. He made the world and the stars and the sun and the moon. He made the fish and the birds and the animals and trees. He made you and me for his glory, his own glory, so that he would be recognised and renowned 
and loved and praised by those who he had made. In particular, loved and praised and worshipped by those who he made as the pinnacle of his creation. People. People like you and like me. We are not some gigantic cosmic accident. We are not the result of millions and trillions of atoms colliding together over years and so have no purpose in life and no foundational principle just to do whatever you like after all because who cares because there's no purpose in what's been made. And we're not self-made either. The person who sees themselves as self-made ultimately is going to live for who? For themselves. Few people are so crass as to say it like that. Generally, we smudge it over with a smear of morality or ethics. But John Paul Sartre, Nietzsche, Marx, they all said it like that, that there's nothing in this universe except for me and whatever I make of it, that is all there is. I make me. Where does that end up? It ends up with nothing in this world being greater than me. I am God, and if I am the greatest, then I'm to be worshipped by me and by anyone else I can persuade to worship me. And so what happens is I use other people and abuse other people. I make profits out of other people and I put them into bankruptcy because, well, the world's my onion, my world is mine, and I can do with it as I please. Instead of our sexual relationships being used for love and for unity, for harmony and procreation, they're used for self-gratification. The other person is just there to satisfy my desires, my wishes. They're just there to use and abuse and then to trade in for a new model when you know, I'm tired of them because they're ultimately just there for my convenience, ultimately. That's what it's like when I think of myself as self-made, as most important. But that is not the case. You are not an accident and you are not self-made. You are made by God. I was made by God. We all were. And we were made for God. He made us to know him, to relate to him rightly, to honour him and to love him just as he loves us. See, when God created this world, he made us as rulers of the world under him. And so you look around the world and who's in charge? What, for good or ill? Humanity's in charge. It's not the ants, though. They are much more numerous, many more millions times as many ants as there are people, but they don't run the world. The whales, they don't run the world. They are massive giants who are fearsome in appearance. There's nothing bigger. They are unrivaled in majesty, but they don't run the world, in fact, We rule them, and the reason they're endangered is because of us. It's not the mice who run the world, despite what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy might say, where uh, it turns out in that great book that the mice are running the universe in a giant cosmic experiment on humans because they are the true overlords who've manipulated us to think that they're just meek and nice and scared. It's a funny read, but it's not true. No, God made people and he made us, the Bible says, in his image. That is, with, with the various characteristics of him in us that the rest of the world does not have. Things like the ability to think and to laugh and to create. 
But even more than that, the ability to rule. That's what being in the image of God means. Just like in places like North Korea or communist nations, communist China, where there are pictures of the leader hung all over the place in every public place or there's statues in the squares. It's to remind people their image is there to remind everyone else of just who really is in charge. And we are the image of God left here to rule under him in order to bring him honour and glory. And so what you do with that position as his image bearers really matters. It matters what we do with this world. It matters that we govern it wisely and not foolishly and that we just don't waste it or leave it in ruins. It matters in terms of what we do with each other. We are not made to use and abuse each other, but instead to love one another and work together and to seek peace. But even more than that, it really matters what we do with God because we were made to know him, to serve him, to relate to him. And you can tell that from our key verse too because of who is this God? He is our Lord and God. He's not the Lord and God. He's not their Lord and God. He is our Lord and our God. The God who wants us to know him intimately and wants to know us intimately. Who, who The God who loves the world that he made and that he rules, loves us and who made us to relate to him, to love him and honour him and glorify him. And so as we start this six-week series together, the first question I want to put to you and for you to put to yourself is, is he your Lord? Is he your God? It's the question of who are you living for? Who are you putting first? Is there anything in your life more important than you? It's a pretty small life when there's nothing more important than you. And if there is something that's more important than you, is it worthy of all honour and glory and power? Has it made you? Does it rule the universe? Or are you living for another human being? Or for your career? Or for a pleasurable retirement? Or for your kids? Or for your car? What is there in your life that's bigger than you that you would live for it? There is only one thing worthy of all your glory and honour and thanksgiving and power and that is our maker. The one through whom and for whom everything exists and has its being. He alone is worthy. Now Father we thank you that you are the creator of this universe, that you made it all and that we can have confidence about how reality works and what will happen tomorrow because you've made it in a consistent way because you love us. We do thank you that you left us in charge, but Father, we're sorry for the mess we've made of it. But Father, we're even more sorry when we haven't lived for you, the one who made us, who owns us, who it's all for, the one who is worthy of all glory, honour and power. Please forgive us and help us to relate to you and to the other people that you have made and to this world rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.